was a time that I swore I would never go back. I was blind to the truth, didn't know what I had. I was running, I was searching, but every place I turned for healing left me more broken than the last. So today I'm going to be teaching on the church. Hey, everybody take your Bibles and go to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and look in verse 14. It says, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and uh, King James says ground. I like ground. The pillar and foundation of the truth. The pillar and foundation of the truth. So, of course, Paul's writing to Timothy and Paul's talking about how people should conduct themselves in the church. And then he describes the church in architectural terms. And he describes it as the pillar and ground of the truth. Pillar, of course, being, you know, the columns that were used in the temples. So it's a vertical idea. And then the ground is the foundation. It's the foundation that the church supports the truth on. So you have this vertical and this foundational framework, this edifice of the church. And in this framework, we have the truth. And it's in this framework that the truth is preserved and protected and promoted in the world. Verse 16, it says, beyond all question, John Shanehide translates this by common confession. So this, is a, this was a standard understanding back in the early church. By common confession, the mystery or the sacred secret of godliness is great. He, Jesus, appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up to glory. So the true gospel of Jesus Christ is this mystery of godliness or the sacred secret of godliness. We all know that by and large, this whole idea of the mystery, the one body has been lost in our day and time. I think a lot of times people give lip service to the body. They say, yeah, the body's the church, but they don't fully understand what the body's all about, that Christ is the head and that we are members of this body. Each one of us is vital to the successful working of this body. So we have the church, and this church is this pillar and ground of the truth, the pillar and ground of the truth. So Paul addresses this idea of what is church in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, which we'll look at. You can go ahead and turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We know that the Greek word for church is ekklesia, and it means assembly. It means those who are called out, those who are called out. So in these first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul is, is working with the Corinthian church, and the Corinthian church was kind enough to provide Paul with a teaching moment. It was a teaching moment. Now, Paul was the apostle that opened Corinth. Among other things, an apostle is someone who is a church planner, who goes in and opens up a church. And that's what Paul did in Corinth. And he did this in, they think, between 50 and 51 AD. It was his second missionary journey. And he had just gotten finished visiting Athens. And so he opened up this area of Corinth. And so look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verse 11. It says, My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Chloe's household. So uh, remember back in the early church, these people met in the home. 
And so Chloe's household was a, a household. It was like a household fellowship. Okay. So Chloe's household contacted Paul and let him know that there was quarreling going on in Corinth. Verse 12. What I mean is this. One of you says, I'm a Paul. I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? So you have the church of Corinth. This was a a good-sized church. And within this church, you had these household fellowships. But what had started to happen in this Corinthian church was that people were starting to divide up into little personality cults. And they would follow, one group would follow this man and his teaching, and another group would follow this man and his teaching. You know, I was thinking about later on in 2 Corinthians, Paul addresses what he called the super apostles. Now, these were men who were actually going out and they were through favor and approval. They were trying to draw in these believers to be disciples to them. Right. That's the idea. Other leaders weren't so necessarily so overt about it. They just like to be the guy in charge. Right. They like to they like the praise and they like the adoration that they got from their people. And they kind of lost track of the fact that Jesus is the one that we should be looking to. He should be receiving our praise. He should be receiving our allegiance, our loyalties, that while, you know, certainly as a, as a minister, you know, I like to get thanked every once in a while for my work, but that's not what it's all about. It's not my celebrity status that we're talking about. It's the Lord. It's the Lord. And this is very important. Uh, you know, several months ago, I was talking to a friend of mine, Mike Tomberlin, and uh, he was telling me about a conversation that he had, had had with another minister and the other minister and the two of them were talking about this unhealthy kind of worshipful attitude that creeps into the laity towards their leadership, their particular ministry. And this this uh, friend of Mike's assured him that that, you know, they don't teach that kind of allegiance in their ministry. And and Mike's you know, responded by saying, well, you may not teach it, but do you teach against it? And I think that's important because I think it's a natural thing for people to gravitate towards names, personalities, right? It's not just a matter of not teaching it. There was a quote many of us took back in the old days where it talks about how people are captivated by the shadow of a few great men. Right. That is a few great men that captivate people's minds and keep people's allegiance. So this is this is kind of part of being in the human race. Look at verse 17. It says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. How about that? That's interesting. Man's wisdom is about who? Man, right? Man is the ultimate object of glory in man's wisdom. Where man's wisdom is prevalent in a ministry, there's no power. I see this in a lot of churches that I, you know, look at around Orlando area that contemporary Christianity has turned, you know, from servants to celebrities, to groupies. People go to churches because they like the music or they like the personality of the minister. Now, there's nothing wrong with liking how a person teach, you know, it teaches. You know, I'm a, I'm a big Tozer fan, but I think it's, it's important for us to recognize that we should be listening to somebody because of the truth 
or the wisdom or the righteousness that they're teaching and not the personality. That's not what we should be going to hear. It's the Lord who is the one who should be glorified. And I think leaders need to reevaluate their motivations. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Am I doing this in order to glorify the Lord, or am I doing this to glorify myself? Look in verse 30. It says, It is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us from God, our wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let he, him that boasts, boast in the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, I came not with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony of God. Look in verse 4. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with demonstration a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest in men's wisdom, but in the power of God, in God's power. And I love this. It's not eloquence. It's not your capability, your ability to entertain people. It's the demonstration of power that we're looking for in a ministry. It's the living word, the living word. It's spoken on believing lips and it's received with believing ears and hearts. That's the church. That's the church. Second Corinthians chapter three. He has made us competent ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. This is what we need in our churches. The Spirit, the Spirit, the letter kills, the Spirit gives life. My friend uh, Gary Corns made this observation. He said that when he hears a teaching, he knows it's a Spirit-filled teaching if the next day or two days or three days later, he's still thinking about that teaching. It's just kind of ringing in his soul. And he knows, on the other hand, that the teaching was of the flesh when the next day he can't even remember the topic of the teaching. And we've talked about this in this fellowship before. Teachings ought to affect us. There ought to be some change involved. This isn't just us getting together and going over, you know, the ministry orthodoxy. It's got to be spirit-led, spirit-led. What made the early church so dynamic? It was the Spirit of God. This passage that I've got here, this is by Ian Bounds. Ian Bounds lived during the 1800s. He was a, uh, a great minister in prayer. And he says the true ministry is God-touched, God-enabled, and God-made. The Spirit of God is on the preacher in anointing power. The fruit of the Spirit is in his heart. The Spirit of God has vitalized the man and his word. His preaching gives life, gives life as a spring gives life, gives life as the resurrection gives life gives ardent life like the summer gives ardent life, gives fruitful life as the autumn gives fruitful life. The life-giving preacher is a man of God whose heart is ever athirst for God, whose soul is ever following hard after God, whose eye is single to God, and in whom, by the power of God's Spirit, the flesh and the world have been crucified, and his ministry is like a generous flood of a life-giving river. Isn't that beautiful? I think that's just beautiful. The preaching that kills, on the other hand, is non-spiritual preaching. Non-spiritual preaching. That's what Paul was talking about when he talked about the wisdom of words. The wisdom of words. This letter preaching has the truth, 
But even divine truth has no life-giving energy alone. It must be energized by the Spirit, with all God's forces at its back. Truth unquickened by God's Spirit deadens as much as, or more than, error. It may be truth without admixture, but without the Spirit, its shade and touch are deadly. It's truth, error, it's light, darkness. The letter preaching is unctionless, neither mellowed nor oiled by the Spirit. The preacher may feel from the kindling of his own sparks, be eloquent over his own exegesis, earnest in delivering the product of his own brain. The professor may usurp the place and imitate the fire of the apostle. Brains and nerves may serve the place and feign the work of God's spirit. And by these forces, the letters may glow and sparkle like an illumined text, but the glow and sparkle will be as barren of life as a field of sown with pearls." The dead dealing element lies back of the word, back of the sermon, back of the occasion, back of the manner, back of the action. The great hindrance is the preacher himself. He has not in himself the mighty life-creating forces. There may be no discount on his orthodoxy, honesty, cleanness, or earnestness, but somehow the man, the inner man, in the secret places, has never broken down and surrendered to God. His inner life is not a great highway for the transmission of God's message, God's power. Somehow self, and not God, rules in the holy, holiest of holies. That's it. Isn't that something? So that's what the church is. The church is the pillar and ground for truth, but not just the orthodox truth, the spiritual truth. The spiritual truth, the life-giving spiritual truth. When we speak of the church, we must remember the church is a spiritual church. It's a life-giving and life-affirming church. Look in, uh, back in 1 Corinthians in verse 9, it's chapter 2. It says, However, as it is written, No eye has seen nor ear heard, No mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him, but God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Look at verse 12. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak. How about that? Isn't that great? This is what we speak. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. It goes on to say, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. Tozer says, everywhere we find persons who are Bible taught, but not Spirit taught. They conceive truth to be something in which they can grasp only with the mind. If a man hold to the fundamentals of the Christian faith, he is thought to possess divine truth, but it does not follow. There is no truth apart from the spirit. The most brilliant intellect may be imbecilic when confronted with the spiritual truths of God. For a man to understand revealed truth requires an act of God equal to the original act which inspired the text. How about that? 
I'm going to read that again. For a man to understand revealed truth requires an act of God equal to the original act, act which inspired the text. In other words, the inspired when Paul was inspired by revelation to sit down and write the text of the of scripture to understand what Paul wrote, we have to have an equally spiritual revelation. Does that make sense everybody? 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 1. In other words, The Bible isn't just an intellectual book. It's got to be read and understood spiritually. We are spiritual people. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. So the Corinthian church, Paul was saying here, was an immature church, that they hadn't grown up spiritually that Paul wanted to share things with them spiritually, but they weren't able to handle it. Verse 3, you are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? How about that? So when you have quarreling and infighting going on within the church, what is that an indicator of? Spiritual immaturity, carnality. Ephesians tells us to make every effort to keep unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And the emphasis there should be unity of the Spirit, of the Spirit, spiritual unity. Keep your finger here and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I was thinking about the manifestations of the Holy Spirit and how they relate. Look in chapter 12 and verse 4. It says there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. The common good. So you see that, you know, we've talked about that analogy in this fellowship about if you take 40 pianos and you tune them with the same tuning fork, what happens? All those 40 pianos are in tune with one another, right? By virtue of the fact that they were tuned by the same tuning for. Well, it's the same with us. It's the same with us. The Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. When there is division within the household, it's spiritual. It's spiritual, always. Why is that? Because we should all be walking by the Spirit from the same God and the same Lord and the same Spirit, right? And we should be in harmony with one another. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 4. It says, For one says, I follow Paul. And another says, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere men? Don't you realize that you're missing the point here? It's not running around chasing men. It's having the same head, Christ. It's having the same spiritual source. And it's here that Paul starts to use this figure, and I want to draw your attention to. He starts um, referring to the leadership of the Corinthian church by using himself and Apollos as examples. Okay, so follow through with this. Verse 5, what after all is Apollos, this leader in the church? What, what is Apollos and what is Paul? And then look at the next word here, only servants, only servants, through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. So, so Paul here refers to himself and Apollos, and he said, who are they? Or who are we, I guess? And then he says, we're only servants. So why is he depreciating himself here? I mean, aren't leaders supposed to be highly esteemed in the church? Yes, yes, they are. But in contrast to God, 
and the Lord, it's an only. It's an only. We are only servants. That there's no boasting here. And that's important to keep in mind. There is a real human tendency to overly indulge our leaders with flattery and praise. Ooh. Right? They esteem them, you know, a high, more than highly in love for their work's sake. We go too far. And the problem is, leaders kind of like it. They kind of like getting praised and thanked. I know I do. I like getting a thank you once in a while. But sometimes it goes too far. Verse 6, I planted the seed, Apollos watered. But what? God made it grow. Did Apollos make it grow? Did Paul make it grow? No, of course not. So look at verse 7. It says, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. There it is again. He's being he's purposely depreciating himself in Apollos. But it's God who makes things grow. That's important. When God is left out, the church becomes all about men. It becomes all about men. And there is nothing more powerless than little personality cults. I was raised in a personality cult called the Roman Catholic Church. We never talked about God or Christ, ever. We only talked about the church. That's all we talked about. Verse 8, the man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. So this is kind of a humble testimony, isn't it? That the, all these ministers in Corinth, they're there for one purpose only, to minister. But it's God who does the, the growth giving, right? He's the one that gives life. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, and you are God's building. Isn't that interesting? So the church, in other words, this group of people, and this is Paul speaking to the leaders. He's reminding the leaders Look, you guys were entrusted with a, to steward God's field and God's building. So up to this point, Paul's been, you know, using an analogy of planting and watering. You know, Apollos planted, or I planted, Apollos watered. It's this agrarian, um, you know, idea, this uh, analogy. Now he's starting to switch to a different analogy. He's talking about buildings, okay? And it kind of fits with what we talked about earlier, that the church is the pillar and ground of truth, right? These, this architectural description. But the emphasis is still the same. It's God's. Whether it's God's field or God's building, it's God's. You know, it's a dangerous thing when a minister starts seeing his ministry as his own, belonging to him. The church is the Lord's. It's the Lord's. So in a figure, Paul is moving from being a wise husbandman, a farmer, to now being a wise master builder. Look in verse 10. By the grace of God, or by the grace God has given to me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. And someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. What's the context here? Well, it's talking about the church. It's talking about the church. Paul is speaking to these quote-unquote celebrities within the Corinthian church. Verse 11, For no one can lay any foundation other than that which was laid, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 12, If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and that fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he builds survives, 
he will receive reward. But if it's burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flame. So he's talking to the Corinthians, but specifically to the leadership. And he's saying, you guys have been committed a stewardship to take care of the Corinthian church. And your work one day will be examined. And it's going to be examined by fire. And if it gets burned up, you're going to suffer loss. You're only going to be rewarded if it remains. You're supposed to be taking care of the church. You're supposed to be giving, uh, getting people to turn their allegiance and their loyalty to Christ and God. You shouldn't be doing that for yourself. Verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, you leaders of Corinth, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Very important. Very important. Leaders are entrusted to take care of God's people. God's people. Verse 18. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age... He should become a fool so that he may become wise. What does that mean? That means according to this world. If you are wise according to the standards of this world, it's time for you to become a fool according to this world and become wise in Christ. You see that? For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then... No more boasting in men. No more boasting in men. Could it be clearer? It's not about men. It's not about Apollos or the Pope or me or whatever. It's about God and Christ Jesus. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Isn't that awesome? I love that. Chapter 4, verse 1. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ, servants of Christ, and as those entrusted with the secret things of God, the mystery. Now, it is required that those who have been given trust must prove faithful. That's the requirement. That's the the requirement, that you are faithful in your ministry, that you're faithful to make sure that the Lord gets the glory. Verse 3, I care very little if I am judged by you or of any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. How about that? We all have to give an account. We all have to stand before the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness, and he will expose the motives of men's hearts. There's all kinds of squabbling going on in the church, people pointing fingers, people saying things. The Lord's going to expose the heart, and that's the truth of it. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Verse 6, Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. See, that's the problem is we think of men more highly than we ought to think. Now listen to this, verse 7. For who makes you different from anyone else, O church leaders? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, how do you boast 
as though you did not? That's a great question. That is a great question. If everything that you have is from the Lord, then what are you boasting about? What are you boasting about? Verse 8, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings, and that without us. Now, this whole passage here is really tongue-in-cheek. Listen to this. How I wish that you really had become kings, so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena, right? So so he's talking to the Corinthian leaders, and he's saying, you guys are doing great. You're doing so great. I wish we could be doing great like you. But we're like, in the King James, he refers to himself as the off-scouring. It's like a dirty dish being rinsed, right? I mean, that they, in their service to God, it's not very glorious, it's not very glorious. It's hard work. It's being defamed, being treated badly. He's saying, boy, we wish we could, you know, Paul is saying, I wish I could be like you guys. You know, I was thinking about uh, what had happened to the church in the early church, how it developed. And it got to the point where, you know, the Pope, you know, the, you know he was supposed to be the legacy of Peter. And now he's up there and he's having people come up and kiss his ring. And how Completely different that was from what uh, what Jesus taught them to wash their feet, that that's the true servant. He goes on to say, we have been made a spectacle of the whole universe to angels as well as men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, but we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. I am not writing this to shame you, but to warn you, my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, this is in reference to all the leaders of Corinth, right? All... uh, Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. It was Paul who went in there in the first place and opened that, that area up. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I am sending to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my ways of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with that, which or with what I teach elsewhere in every church. In other words, Paul's teaching, his ministry wasn't just teaching from the podium. That his life, his mentorship, that he spent time with people, and he taught them by his life. I think about that verse in Thessalonians where it says, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you have become so dear to us. That's true ministry true ministry. Verse 18, some of you have become arrogant as if we, I was not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. That's the test, isn't it? That's the test. How powerful are they? Let me get a look at their fellowship, right? Are they spending a bunch of time in prayer and beseeching the Lord? Are there a lot of praise reports? You see what I'm saying? Is there fruit? Are we looking at fruit? Verse 20, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. 
What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip or in love and a gentle spirit? And, and that's what Paul is extending to them. He's saying, look, your choice, your choice. If you guys can pick up what I'm putting down here and repent, it'll be good. I'll come. We'll have a gentle, wonderful time together. But if not, there's going to be a butting of heads. Anyway, I want to finish back up in First uh, Timothy chapter 3, if you go back there. We're just going to reread uh, the verse that I started off with and look in verse 14. It says, although I hope to come to see you, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. Boy, that's so true, isn't it? And that's what the Corinthian, uh, the Corinthian letters were all about, reminding them how they're supposed to be behaving in God's household, which is the church of the living God the pillar and foundation of the truth. It's the Lord's church. Christ is the Lord of the church. He's the head. It is a spiritual church, and its leaders need to remember this. All right? So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for that. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for this wonderful church that you've called us to. And, Father, our allegiance, our loyalty, our dedication, our devotion is to you and your Son, I thank you, Heavenly Father, that we can stand shoulder to shoulder as ministers and, and, and speak your word with boldness and with clarity. I thank you, Father, that, that you just bless this church, this fellowship. And, Father, just make it grow so that we can praise you with more mouths. How's that verse go? That we may with one heart and one mouth glorify you. So I thank you for all these things in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Take me back. To the place that feels like home To the people I can depend on To the faith that's in my bones Take me back To a preacher and a verse Where they've seen me at my worst To the love I had at first Oh, I want to go to church Trying to walk on my own But I'm wound up alone now I'm making my way to the foot of the cross It's not a trophy for the winners It's a shelter for the sinners And it's right where I belong Take me back to the place that feels like home To the people I can depend on To the faith that's in my bones Take me back to a preacher and a verse where they've seen me at my worst To the love I had at first Oh, I wanna go to church I wanna go to church Oh, more than an obligation It's our foundation It's in my bones Take me back To a preacher and a verse Where they've